Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today I have Dr. Logan Yoho. Uh, Dr. Yoho is the Director of Pharmacy at Hopewell Health Centers here in Ohio. He also attended Ohio Northern University, Go Polar Bears. But most importantly for this podcast, he's also 340B Apexis certified expert, meaning that he's an expert on 340B, which is what we're going to be talking about today. So Dr. Yoho, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Eric. So 340B, we're going to dive into this a lot here, but it's basically a program that we can really kind of use with some of the pharma things to help some of the underserved people in and around pharmacy and in healthcare. It's come under some scrutiny recently with some different aspects and things like that, but can you generally explain how 3D40B works, what it is, and kind of some of the, the basics to everybody? Sure. 340B was a part of a bipartisan bill that passed in 1992 and was signed into law by George H.W. Bush. So it's been around for nearly 30 years at this point. The intent of the program was to allow covered entities to stretch scarce federal resources as far as possible, reaching more eligible patients and providing more comprehensive services. Pretty lengthy intent to mean two pretty easy things. The program allows community health centers and other covered entities to purchase drugs at greatly reduced rates. This allows those covered entities to accomplish two things. So the first is we provide our patients who are uninsured or underinsured medications with prices that are a fraction of what they'll pay in a retail setting. For example, at my health center, many of my uninsured patients pay less than $20 for a three-month supply of brand insulin. The same is true of epinephrine auto-injectors. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a pretty stark difference compared to what you hear in the news about the cost of EpiPens. So the second intent of the, or second branch of how the program works is that we can bill insurance for those with insurance in order to claim the 340B savings. So the cost, the cost that we're paid by the insurance minus the cost we've paid for the drug is our 340B savings. So these savings are directly reinvested in patient care. We do a lot with this money. It includes opening clinics in unique areas, such as in my health center, we have three schools that have an embedded primary care health center. We also use it to start services that would be unattainable without the savings. So at Hopewell, we have a mobile dental clinic um, that provides dental hygiene to areas that don't have a dentist available. We have an extensive uh, medication-assisted treatment service for patients that are struggling with the opioid epidemic. And we hire clinicians that don't typically pay their salary with their own revenue generated through um, visits such as dietitians and clinical pharmacists. So one of the most common myths about the program is that it's taxpayer funded, which it's not. How many programs that reduce uh, drug prices can say that? It's pretty yeah. rare. The way the program works is that if a manufacturer wants to participate in the Medicaid program, then they must participate in the 340B program, giving discounts on those same medications. So that's pretty much every drug on the market. There are some exceptions, such as vaccines. They're not considered what a covered outpatient drug. But pretty much anything else with an NDC is included, including over-the-counter medications, if they're accompanied by a prescription. So it's a pretty complex program that can be broken down in 
pretty easy way. Basically, the savings we get from paying less for the drugs is reinvested in our patients. Yeah, so that sounds like something that would be a huge uh, a benefit to society as a whole, considering that when you look across the board, people with lower income generally have uh, poorer health and have poor outcomes when they do have major health issues, whether it be diabetes or high blood pressure, what ha- you name it, what whatever it is, they seem to have worse outcomes. It could be lack of access, lack of education, you name it. And you kind of hit on some huge things there you guys do with like dental screenings or uh, dental visits, screenings, uh, opioid addiction issues, dietitians, which is a huge one, especially where we see in people who aren't educated as well as say some of us pharmacists are, there's definitely a huge usually gap there with some of their dietary needs and what they're eating, how they're eating, things like that, because they tend to eat less healthy foods or eat fast food more, things like that. You mentioned dietitians. One of the things that a lot of covered entities do with their 340B savings is start produce prescription programs where they give their patients access to fresh produce and give them recipes to be able to cook that and become familiar with foods that they wouldn't normally have and have access to foods that they may not be able to purchase. A lot of our patients are in rural areas or in inner city areas without transportation and don't have access to fresh produce and other healthy foods. Yeah. And with COVID being hit, you know, whether you're in inner city or in rural area, your transportation could be majorly impacted via bus or other things with places closing down currently. So there's a number of reasons why that's a good thing that you guys do that for fresh produce to help the overall health of these people. Do you guys focus a lot on driving adherence at all or anything like that? Or kind of, is there anything else you guys do with uh, the savings in 340B where you invest? Each covered entity is a little different in the way that they use their um, savings. Um, It's left very open, which is great for the covered entity to be able to individualize the need for their community. So adherence is a big thing that we struggle with in rural areas, especially with my experience, because those patients may not have access to get back to the pharmacy or um, get to their doctor's appointments. So we're utilizing um, chronic care management. So we have RNs that are calling our patients that are struggling with chronic disease state. They're calling them once a week. They're checking in. Are they taking their medications? Are they checking their blood sugars if they're diabetic? Are they checking their high blood pressure? And encouraged, encouraging them to stay active with that. They regularly in our clinic use our clinical pharmacists and consult with them um, as needed for um, those medication issues that come up. Often they, they are able to identify adherence issues that stem from a lack of access of drugs. And that's where the 340B program works great with that adherence because we can increase the access, whether it's finding them a cash discount program through 340B or if it's still a too expensive, even with the 340B pricing, we can find them an alternative within the same class and work with the medical provider to get the medication changed to a medication that they can access. I always like to say, since I took over this position, that the, the best medication is worthless if the patient can't afford it. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And the one thing I, I like that you mentioned there is the flexibility of 340B. It's it's basically, a, from my understanding, you can correct if I'm wrong here, but a carte blanche to, hey, here's the savings as long as you apply it to your the patients you serve in a manner to improve their health, you know, you can spend it however you want, which is why you said, you know, you're buying fresh produce with it and things like that. 
I know up here uh, by me in Cleveland, Ohio, I've seen places that use the uh, the pill caddies, the weekly or mo- even monthly organizers. They lay them all out for people to make it easier to remember. They have set up special delivery programs to make sure that they're, again, helping them with some of those transportation issues and those access to care issues that you mentioned and things like that. And the way I thought that was pretty interesting about it is when this happens, everyone wins because if we're keeping these people healthier, they're able to work, they're able to do things like that that make them more productive. But on top of that, we're keeping them out of the healthcare system, which, you know, with their stance, more than likely indigent is just a toll on the healthcare system then, which ends up being funded by taxpayers at some of these more, you know, obviously like county or state run hospital programs, if you will. So I think of it as a way as, you know, the drug manufacturers are making a lot of profit, you know, off selling their drugs, 340B is getting a small slice of that and putting it directly where it's needed. Is that is that correct in my understanding of that? That That's exactly correct. It allows us that freedom to meet our patients where they're at and be able to help change their health care. Because even in the state of Ohio, which is where I'm located, each health center is a little different. Our patients are very different, whether they're in a rural area, inner city, suburban. So being able to meet our patients where they're at is the best way to improve their health outcomes. Yeah, for sure. Because that way it's, we're helping them fit the mold to them, not them fit the mold, if you will. Correct. Now we've seen some of 340B come under some scrutiny recently. Do you care to elaborate on any of that and kind of what's going on with some of the 340B? I don't want to say changes, but just some of the broad topics that have been brought up with that. Okay. I'll get a little bit of history that kind of leads into what's happening. So originally only the covered entity itself could actually the 340B prices. So say it's my health center, I could buy the drugs at reduced cost. But that created a big problem in the fact that the patients couldn't access the medications after they left the clinic. So we could buy the medications we were going to use at that time, but the patients couldn't access it the rest of the time. So shortly after the program started, HRSA, who oversees the program, allowed each covered entity to contract with one contract pharmacy. This helped, but there was still a huge problem for access. For example, my health center covers over 4,400 square miles. Oh, wow. Having one pharmacy in that nine counties does nothing for my patients. So in 2010, as part of the Affordable Care Act, the program expanded a little bit. It added a new hospital-based entity. In that same year, HRSA issued guidance that allowed each covered entity to contract with an unlimited number of contract pharmacies. This is the point that really um, is driving today's press. So this allowed entities such as my own ability to provide access for all of our patients. So at my health center, we have a, different health centers do this differently. We cast a wide net and contract with pharmacies. We try to contract with pharmacies where our patients live, work, worship, and play. We try to bring 340B access to our patients, not the other way around. So back to why we're getting so much press. So HRSA recently stated that they do not have the authority to enforce guidance. And because that contract pharmacy piece is under guidance, not the statute, the manufacturers saw an opportunity to reduce the spread of the 340B program. So they're doing this in a few different ways. Um, some manufacturers decided to try to force covered entities into data sharing platforms. So these platforms, basically, we would have to upload 
every claim, 340B claim that we fill for that manufacturer, and they are using it to identify duplicate discounts. Duplicate discounts with Medicaid are strictly forbidden within the 340B statute. Right. So basically, we're getting a discount on the drugs up front, and at, in that case, Medicaid would also apply for a rebate, so the manufacturer would be paying twice, which is not the intent of the program. And it's something that we're that is strictly forbidden, and covered entities take very good care to make sure it does not happen. So with duplicate discounts that are with Medicare and commercial insurance, these these duplicate discounts are not covered under statute because they're optional to the manufacturer. The manufacturers sometimes voluntarily develop these rebate agreements with PBM, and they're viewing this as another type of duplicate discount, which is not covered under statute. The fear is that if we send this information to the manufacturers, the manufacturers, which they stated, are going to use it to keep from paying the duplicate discounts with the PBM. And because we, the PBM is getting less money, the covered entities are fearful that they will retaliate against us, the PBM, in the form of discriminatory contracts because they're getting their rebates denied. The manufacturers are also saying that if we do not comply with their request to involve ourselves with these data sharing platforms, they will withhold all 340B drugs from contract pharmacies. We have a lot of concerns with the data sharing programs, including the, the fact that we are providing information that could be used against us when we go to contracts with our PBMs. We also have concerns that that data is has a lot of personal health information in it, that it could be a HIPAA infringement. They claim to de-identify the data, but there are some fears. And we also are concerned that we're providing them information that they can use in a unfair advantage during contract negotiations, which is, I don't feel is um, appropriate for us to get in the middle of their contract negotiations with uh, PBMs. So other manufacturers are using a totally different tactic. They are stating that they are just going to outright deny sending 340B drugs to contract pharmacies altogether. There are a couple manufacturers that have already said they're going to do this. One actually already put it into effect, saying that claiming that they don't have to because it's part of guidance and not the statute. So to covered entities, all these attacks from pharma are nothing more than a way to increase profit. There's claims that they're trying to make sure duplicate discounts with Medicaid are not happening, but um, they've not proven that they are. So it seems like a way to just get around the statute altogether. Yeah, and to that point, you know, there's always one bad actor out there, whether it be pharmacy, pharma, medical doctors, lawyers, you name it. There's always one bad apple you can point out there. So. I always say kind of throw that one out and look at this if there truly is a systemic problem with this. And to my knowledge, there really isn't because the people who do run 340B, like yourself, are really, really diligent in what they're doing to make sure that they're avoiding those those duplicate claims or those duplicate uh, rebates and claims through these uh, 340B programs because that jeopardizes their 340B status, correct? Correct. 
Correct. And we we take great care into making sure that those duplicates, there's two main um, regulations with 340B that we have to uphold. We have to uphold that there is no duplicate discounts with Medicaid and that 340B drugs are not diverted to a non-eligible patient. So we take very great care in making sure that those two things do not happen. I understand pharma's hesitance to want to pay a PBM rebate after already discounting the drug to 340B pricing, but covered entities feel like that's between them and the PBM and that they should go back and negotiate that if that's not something that they feel like they should have to do. Yeah, we're already seeing PBMs making money hand over hand over foot here with a lot of stuff. Now they're throwing 340B in there in in some fashion. So it's just kind of like how much how much more greed can you have? I mean, we're seeing pharmaceutical companies also post pretty high profit margins to put that humbly. So I mean, it feels like they're trying to put this on the backs of the people who who really need it the most in society, which is the part that really kind of frustrates me. I'm not a bleeding heart person by any stretch, but I'm looking at this from even a fiscal standpoint. It just makes sense of why we need programs like 340B to really tailor to those people who are in the most utmost need here with that. Is that kind of the way you're seeing it too? Correct. Um, I, a capitalist at heart, I, I understand that um, these businesses need to make money. I, I get that. But um, there, there are still ethics involved and we've got to take care of these patients. We're not just dealing with a um, commodity that's um, being bought and sold. We're dealing with patients' lives. Yeah, very, very, very true here. Um, with that, I know we've talked a little bit kind of off the air with some of this. We saw Representative Scott Lips mentioned this on my last podcast that he is a huge proponent of 340B, as a number of politicians are, because of the, the people it deals with. Given that we've seen such a huge uptick in political spending by some of the 340B opponents uh, against it in the current way it's set up, what do you think pharmacists and others can do to kind of help save a program like this to keep you know, really protect those patients who are truly struggling because this isn't just health centers like yours. My pharmacy, which is a regular chain pharmacy, is actually a pretty big 340B contract pharmacy. We do a ton of it where I work. So, I mean, this is something that impacts a lot more than just pharmacists that work at 340B clinics. What do you think that we can do to kind of help make sure that we keep programs like this in place to help people who need it? Yeah, and that raises a great point. Contract pharmacy is so important to to the operations of 340B entities at this point, just because most of these entities are very large and access to care, we've talked about several times, but it, it always comes up. So the 340B contract pharmacies allow us to provide that access to the patient. The basic way it works is the pharmacies paid a small fee to fill the prescription, and then the remainder of the savings are returned to the covered entity. That fee can be a percentage or a flat rate. It tends to be very low. Um, the covered entity fight to make sure that as little of the savings as possible are spent in intermediaries, but we do have to pay the pharmacy to do that. I wouldn't expect anyone to, to fill the prescription without getting reimbursed. But I think that it's just not possible for every covered entity to have a in-house pharmacy at every site. It would be great if we did. My health center decided in 2017 to to hire me and to develop an in-house pharmacy. It works great, but we only have one for 26 clinics. It's just not feasible. Most clinics can't sustain an in-house pharmacy. 
Uh, many of our clients only have one medical provider. So it's just not sustainable. So there are a lot of barriers, including PBM restrictions to that as well. So that kind of led us to what um, Representative Litz was talking about. Um, PBMs have started to see that 340B is a potential place that they can actually increase their profit margin. They realize that we're paying less for the drug, so they're charging or they're paying us less when reimbursing us in the in-house pharmacy. So I really want to thank um, Representative Lips for being such an advocate to for 340B and the profession of pharmacy as a whole. I think that probably the most important next step is to help educate the public and legislators on the benefits of the program. Most people know very little about the, the complex program and generally view it favorably after they have learned a, a little bit about the program. I think education is the key. So grassroots efforts such as writing letters, op-eds, Talking to media are great ways to spread the message of what the program does. Of course, if you're in Ohio, I would urge you to contact your representatives and senators in the state to, to ask them to support House Bill 482 and Senate Bill 263. These are the companion bills that let spoke of that prevent the PBMs from stealing um, the savings intended for covered entities. Okay, so you said that was a, the, it was a House Bill 42 and Senate Bill 263, just to make sure I'm clear on that? Correct. Yeah, those are Ohio bills. They're companion bills, so they basically say the same thing in each model. We're just trying to see which one will get through. Okay. They're both currently in their respective committees and just waiting on their proponent testimony at this point. Okay. And one key thing I want to point out here is we're both in Ohio. We're kind of talking about some Ohio politics and Ohio bills, but 340B is in every state. It's a nationwide bill. Like you said, it was signed under President George W. Bush almost 30 years ago at this point, or George H.W. Bush, sorry, uh, almost 30 years ago at this point. And so it's something that's in every state. So although we're talking about Ohio here with me and Dr. Yoho on the podcast, this is in every single state. In fact, I would probably venture to say it's in every county in every state from when I was looking at the maps of where they all lie. There might be one or two I missed on there, but I'm pretty sure it is in every single county, so it should be in every single district. And if you don't know what 340B is, there's some great tools out there to kind of learn about it. I actually went and got a certificate in it myself. Can you kind of explain what you would recommend for people who want to learn about it? Yeah, so there is a great program through Apexis. Apexis is what's called the Prime Vendor Program. So they are a company that put a bid in to be the prime vendor for HRSA. Basically, what that means is HRSA pays them a contracted rate to provide education and support for 340B entities. They reapply for that rate every so many years. They've won it the last several years. So, Apexis offers a 340B University On Demand course. So, this course is a free program. Um, it educates covered entities and non-covered entities alike about the program. It's done in a nonpartisan fashion. And it's basically very easy to digest videos. You can do on your own time. I use it as a vital part of the training for all of my staff in my in-house pharmacies. I also make all of my AFI students complete it. And it's just a great way to learn about the program for anyone that's working with the program. I know prior to coming to a covered entity and working, I thought I knew a little bit about 340B. I worked in a contract pharmacy. 
for many years. But once I got there and started going three four maybe university, I realized I knew nothing about the program <laughs> and learned a lot very quickly. Yeah, and this is kind of what even led me to to ask you on this podcast was I took the course myself, really learned a lot. I forget exactly how long it is. It might be like five or six hours total. I might even, it might be a little bit less than that, but it's very eye opening and explaining what it is. And for those of you who want to Google it, uh, Pexus is A-P-E-X-U-S, very simple way of spelling it. And if you want to look more into kind of what HRSA does, it's an abbreviation. It's H-R-S-A. It's a government agency. I forget the exact acronym off, t- off the tip of my tongue. But that's just kind of what we're talking about here since there's a little bit of uh, – I don't want to make sure I lose people with some of these acronyms and things like that. What else do you have to say about 340B and so kind of you know like how COVID's impacted it and things like that, how it impacts hospitals? Uh, is there anything else you want to kind of share on that before we kind of move a little bit? Sure. So I um, – COVID has been a big impact to the program. If anything, I think that it has made – made the program more needed than ever. I talked to many patients over the past several months who lost their jobs and ultimately their insurance. 340B was allowed them to access these vital medications until they found work. Um, I had one patient here not too long ago just break down in tears because they thought that they were going to have to ration their insulin until they found out that they could get it at a reduced rate. It also allowed us to quickly transition to telehealth. That technology isn't free, and our health centers commonly run on shoestring budgets. So we were able to utilize some of those savings to quickly upgrade our technology and make that transition like all of us had transition. Another thing we did with our savings, specifically COVID-related, we are providing home delivery for our patients for medication access. With such a large footprint, that is a barrier. (laughs) We... Our drivers spend a lot of time on the road, um, but we felt like that was a good use of the savings and it allows us to provide free delivery to our patients who might not want or to leave their homes or those patients that are immunocompromised that definitely shouldn't leave their homes. So I think um, COVID really made us appreciate the program even more. I, I think it's important that that we always bring it back to the patients and the, the patients are why we do it. If a patient's having to choose between insulin and food, that's why I do this. That's why I fight so hard for this program. And I think it has a huge um, place in our healthcare system. Yeah, especially for in medications like that, the, for insulin, that are just absolutely life critical, not just like life-saving like naloxone can be, but life critical, just so you can even maintain life. It, that's where it really hits home with a lot of people, especially especially the diabetics who are just you know on the lower end of the spectrum when it comes to income and things like that. So um, before we get going, though, I'm definitely going to ask you two questions. I ask every guest on this podcast, so I hope you're ready for them. If you could change, okay. one, if you could change one thing about pharmacy, what would it be? I've been saying this for quite a while, but. I wish every pharmacist in this country would become an advocate for the profession. That one change could change everything. Yeah. I think our profession is too complacent. Um, We tend to just go with the flow. And there are other healthcare professionals that will fight and fight like hell to advance their profession. And we don't do it for ourselves. Yeah, I, I've said similar things. That's again kind of the reason I started this podcast a little bit. But yeah, pharmacists need to uh, 
spell fight with a PH like we do everything else these days so we can kind of take our profession and take healthcare by storm and show them what we can do. I'm totally on board with you there. If you could change one law about pharmacy, federal or state, doesn't matter, what would it be and why? I think right now that something that came up here not too long ago that I really think would make such a positive impact on everyone in the healthcare system is allowing pharmacists prescriptive authority of DME and over-the-counter medications, so durable medical equipment and over-the-counter medications. These things are things that are safe enough for the patient to buy without a prescription. So why not give the pharmacist prescriptive authority? That way we can get it covered on their insurance. We spend everyone in the healthcare system, both medical providers and pharmacists and nurses, we all spend a ridiculous amount of time on the phone with each other just to get prescriptions for these items when it should not be necessary in any case. Yeah. And, you know, to your point, a lot of the insurance companies will only cover testing so often if a person is in, you know, insulin dependent, non-insulin dependent when it comes to like diabetic supplies. So, and that's something that's very black and white, easy to figure out either they're on insulin or they're not, you know, if, if there's a reason that they need to test more, it's usually pretty, pretty evident right there. And also, like you said, there's so many regulations on those things. Like the brand must be on there. The diagnosis code, you must have the exact way they're testing. You have to have, you know, you can't put one bottle. You must put, you know, 100 strips, 50 strips, 25 strips, whatever it is. There's so many little tiny specifics that get overlooked by the prescriber and because quite frankly, they don't care. They just want them to have the prescription. And as a pharmacist, if I, I can't call you and necessarily audit it or change it, but if I had that prescriptive authority, I can fix it on the fly. There we go and out the door with it. So I think that's a, that's a great one. And also a great point about the OTC medications as well. And I think with pen needles is another place. Yep. Um, the provider's so worried about getting the patient, their insulin pens, they don't think about pin needles. And I get that. It's not something they need to think about at that time. So I think that that's somewhere else we could be a great um, help. And it would help the medical providers as well. Yeah. I, th- I think of how many times where I've been, I've gotten a prescription that says, please give them a, uh, a spacer with their inhaler. And I'm like, well, I need a separate prescription for that. <laughs> and you know, that's yeah, exactly. another stupid thing that I could talk with them. Hey, how are you using the inhaler? You're not using it. Hey, try a spacer. Let's, let's use this and go from there. So I think that's like really just a common sense thing. Since you said they can buy them over the counter, why can't we write a prescription for it? So I think that's a, a great call out right there. Uh, hey, Dr. Yoho, thanks for coming on and explaining some of the nuances of 340B to people. If people want to reach out to you, where's a good place they can they can find a 340B, a PEXA certified expert, as, such as yourself? Well, I'm very active on Twitter. My handle is Yoho, Y-O-H-O, PharmD, P-H-A-R-M-D. So that is a great way to get a hold of me. Okay, great. Yeah, a lot of us who are into the politics side of pharmacy are on there. So he's a good follower. I hope everyone uh, follows him on here soon. Uh, and everyone, if you can, always, you know, share this episode. I think this is important information to get about healthcare. This is also a great, you know, we do episodes like this so that if people have questions or you reach out to a politician, you can just point to this episode, share it with them. This is like basically an educational piece about some of the political machinations within pharmacy and healthcare. But Dr. Yeho, thanks again for coming on. And listeners, thanks for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics. 